Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Selected Shorts Too Hot for Radio. It's me, Aparna Nancherla, hostess with the mostest questionable content. Specifically, stories that we simply cannot and will not air on public radio. Tales too sexy, too dirty, too upsetting for some, but thankfully just right for you freaks out there on the web. And we believe that clicking on our show is proof positive that the internet can be a place of good decisions. But let's talk about bad decisions for a moment. In particular, college. Take the word college itself, which is based on the Latin for community or society, and location to make truly terrible choices, like dating the teacher's assistant, or taking one too many bong rips and then jumping from a second-story window because your RA is coming, or going deeply into debt for four years before realizing they can't teach nepotism. Meanwhile, you're thinking about grades and anxious around your peers and strangers and teachers and wondering which one of them likes you and which doesn't and who has the cutest butt and wondering if any of them think you might have the cutest butt or at least a nominally cute butt. And all of this is happening while you're eating ramen out of a styrofoam cup. Those years can also spark an entirely new category of bad decision making connected to that righteous anger that comes with your late teens, early 20s. By then, you've read some Chomsky and the scales have fallen from your eyes. It feels orgasmic to use the words patriarchal hegemony in a sentence and boycott the dorm cafeteria because the grapes in the fruit salad cannot be accurately sourced. You can talk Marx, Karl, of course, but sure, Groucho too, and revolution feels like it's right around the corner. You will never be like your willfully blind, bootlicking parents, and you will always, always fuck the man. No, not that teacher's assistant. It was fun. It was wrong. It's over now. I'm talking the man, the big guy, the oppressor. And so, buoyed by that anger and certainty, maybe you take some huge risk in the name of tearing it all down, a risk that may not seem as bold or as revolutionary in hindsight. And this is where today's story comes in. It's by Colombian-born author Helena Araujo. Only a fraction of her work has been translated into English, but she wrote criticism, short stories, and novels in Spanish, including Fiesta en Teusaquillo and Ardores y Furores. Though it has never been made explicit, this piece seems to refer to student uprisings in Colombia during the late 60s and early 70s. The author even touches on friction between communist, nationalist, and anarchist ideals. And even though our show is too hot, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that the era is also reflected in some of the narrator's language, which includes some dated slang and insults we'd probably think twice about using today. That said, it's a great story, so we think you'll like it despite this. The story was read at home by the actor Peter J. Fernandez. 
He's appeared in movies including The Irishman and The Adjustment Bureau and series including Luke Cage. And lucky for us, he does a lot of books on tape for writers including James Patterson. And while we'd usually have some kind of interview after the performance, the story is sizable. For that reason, and the fact that Helena Arujo died in 2015, we'd figured we'd let this story speak for itself. So here's Peter J. Fernandez performing Asthmatic by Helena Arujo. Asthmatic. You say you want to know how it all started? Well, there was a ruckus at Valle University, and the students at National U wanted to stage a demonstration. Apparently in Cali they were asking for more power for the student council, and when they got turned down they decided to take over the president's office. But damn, those sons of bitches had it together. Not only did they take over the office, they went through the files and found papers from the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations and an IDB contract to boot. From then on, there was no stopping them. Flyers, marches, meetings, they did it all. Finally, one afternoon, they wound up in a fracas outside the government administration building, and then there were troops swarming the university before you could blink an eye. Between the barricades and the rock-throwing, they kicked the shit out of I don't know how many guys. Pretty soon, the National U staged a demonstration in Bogota, but the pigs turned out right away and hauled in a bunch of people. It was two days after that. Two? That's right. Two days later, the private universities and some high schools joined the movement. They were going to organize a huge march downtown, starting from the university campus. Some of us read about it in the newspaper the night before at Daniel's place. So instead of talking about Lenin or Ho Chi Minh, we got into discussing the movement. Man, we yacked for hours and never agreed on a single thing. One was all for the comrades, another for the China lovers, and one guy wanted to get the rest of the senior class into it. That seemed a little risky, though. Up to then, we'd been underground, so to speak. Nobody knew about the meetings. Why blow our cover just like that? Agreed, and it was Herrera who came up with marching incognito. For a change, Garcia liked the idea and even thought it would define us as supporters of a classless society. But Daniel and Hurtado boycotted it. They thought we couldn't just improvise our first action from one minute to the next. After all, what were we? A party? A dissident faction? When you got right down to it, what was our political platform? Silence. There we all were yawning and trying to pretend we weren't sleepy. And finally it occurred to Lineth that we could write a statement of solidarity with the students in Cali. But Garcia insisted on getting backing from some organization. There weren't enough of us. Forget that. Daniel started waving his fists around like maracas, cutting in on people right and left. If we hadn't joined a movement, why not come right out and speak for ourselves? Just before daylight, dog-tired after all that wrangling, we decided to snack on some bread and salami. Then we opened a bottle of booze. So when Daniel jumped up, slapped his forehead, yelled, Yee-haw! Got it! And said something about a kidnapping, 
we were all half tight. Kidnapping? Holy shit! Every jaw in the room dropped. We sat around like a freeze frame in that mess we'd made. Cushions everywhere, cigarette butts, dirty dishes. I can still see Daniel kneeling in the middle with us all around him. Hurtado like a Buddha in a trance, and Herrera squatting on his heels, emptying his glass. The light was filtering in from Jimenez Street through the raindrops on the windows. We'd turned out the light bulb covered with a basket we used for a lamp. For safety, supposedly. Yes, we were sitting around in the dark, except for a blink of neon now and then. Garcia was smoking with those quick, muscular movements of his. Lina sat up. Herrera came over to see if Daniel was serious. Hurtado was sitting with his arms around his knees. Naturally, Garcia spoke up first. He vetoed the proposal in his best sportscaster voice, waved his hairy hands around, called it petty bourgeois exhibitionism. Then Herrera, all caution, called it sensationalism. But Hurtado and Lina didn't seem convinced. When Daniel ignored the rest of us and started to chortle about how great it would be, just like in the movies, Hurtado and Lina laughed along with him. Imagine the look on Monsignor's face if he finds out, Lina half hiccuped. Then I chimed in. He'd shit in his pants. He'd be so pissed. Well, then Herrera went all pop-eyed, held his finger in front of his mouth and shushed us. We had to be serious, he said. Naturally, Hurtado didn't miss the chance to give us a lecture on urban guerrilla warfare. He and Herrera had been assigned a Tupamaro text to analyze, and he decided to recite it for us. We thought he'd never shut up. We were dying to get some sleep. Garcia was listening straight-faced, almost solemn, but the rest of us were yawning. Daniel opened another bottle. It was his idea, after all. He was entitled. I can still see him standing there, swigging booze. He couldn't have come from anywhere but Cartagena. He was black, and damn proud of it, and the rest of us looked puny next to him. My skin seemed pastier, and my posture looked worse. Herrera looked like an albino frog, to the point that his throat seemed to puff out when he talked. Garcia was short, too, with thin lips. He blinked a lot. Hurtado was fat and clumsy. He looked like a sad old senator with that long hair of his. Lina, we called the little flea because he was so pale and had no beard at all and because he was always blushing. Even back then he was drawing good caricatures and the year after that he enrolled in fine arts. Of the five, only Herrera had a scholarship. He used to get sarcastic about being just a plebeian. Garcia's family had money, but he wouldn't allow us to mention pedigree around him. The rest of us were upcoming oligarchs with famous grandfathers or great-grandfathers. Whereas we were feeling like upper-class scaredy-cats that night, we didn't let on, naturally. Daniel, the only one over eighteen with his own apartment, went right on partying, handing the bottle around, talking a blue streak, and laughing his head off about how well it would all turn out just like in the movies. 
I don't remember who decided the first thing we had to do was make hoods. Lina knew more about sewing than anybody else, so he got some scissors and started hunting for cloth. Since there wasn't any handy, he grabbed a sheet off the bed. He cut out some squares. Then he folded them to make points and cut two holes in each one. He and I scrounged around for a while and finally found a spool of thread and another pair of scissors the cleaning lady had left lying around. Somehow we got a couple of needles threaded and worked on the booze and the hoods, pricking our fingers and cussing while the rest of the guys figured out how to get some weapons. I remember they ran through the entire armory, from toy pistols to kitchen knives. Hurtado and Herrera were acting all grown up and trying to put a damper on the party. Finally, they suggested the CO2 pistol Herrera's dad kept to use against muggers. We went along with the idea and promised to pick it up on our way to school, since Herrera's house was on the way. The pistol, of course, was to threaten the pig with while we disarmed him. Because we were going to disarm him, right? That would be Garcia's job, right? Garcia here, Garcia there, Garcia everywhere. And now the big jerk wanted to pull out. Scratching his head like he had dandruff and running off at the mouth about bourgeois sensationalism. And that would screw us over because we needed him. He was taking karate lessons and had already come out of a couple of fights with flying colors. So we had to sit back and let him rave and not push him. He'd come around eventually. And then Hurtado, well, Hurtado was simply brilliant. He took Garcia aside and gave him this incredible pep talk about what our action would mean. In return for letting the pig go, we'd demand freedom for all the students they'd jailed. No more, no less. How does that grab you? That was it. Garcia had no choice. He caved in. I remember that Lina got so excited over everybody agreeing, he started turning cartwheels on the bed. It took us a while to pound it out of him with cushions and get a little order going again. The important thing was to plan, organize, get the timing down. The thing had to go off like clockwork. Well, Garcia said, throwing his chest out, disarming the pig would be no big deal. But where would we hide him afterward? I think by that time we'd emptied the second bottle. Otherwise, I don't know how we would have ever thought of the gatehouse. That was Daniel's idea, too. Got it. Hell yes. He wiggled his fingers through the holes in his hood and guffawed. The gatehouse! Where else? He showed all those perfect white teeth in a big grin, rolled up the hood and threw it to Lina in a football pass. Lina dropped it, naturally. At that point, Garcia left us all thunderstruck by finally agreeing in his sportscaster voice, of course. The idea seemed okay to him because the gatehouse was only feet from where the pig stood guard, right? Right. Right. It was Herrera who broke in then to say they'd give us the afternoon off from school, like they always did when there was a demonstration. Hurtado mentioned that the gatekeeper might be standing next to the entrance where the freeze was the one with the keys we always called the keys to the kingdom. The gatehouse was right there. 
it would be easy to dump the gatekeeper. He was some kind of ex-sacristan or something, one of the principal's flunkies. Lina was yelling, Dump the gatekeeper! Dump the gatekeeper! when he started gagging. We barely had time to shove him into the bathroom before he heaved. That was when Garcia decided to make some black coffee. We'd try to lay out a detailed plan of action once we sobered up. Hurtado and Herrera took charge of the timing. According to them, the whole operation would take seven or eight minutes if we worked fast. Things would happen more or less like this. At noon, Daniel and I would stay in the library finishing an assignment after everybody else left. The other guys would hide in the bathroom until the priest who taught scholastic studies called roll and went into the refectory for lunch. Then Daniel would go down and ask the gatekeeper to go to the store for a soda. As soon as he left, Daniel would go into the courtyard and whistle. That was our signal. We'd get downstairs and into the gatehouse pronto. Then came Garcia's starring role. With or without the hood? We spent the rest of the time we had arguing over that stupid little detail. Daniel insisted the most, because with the hood it would be like in the movies. Lina, too, since he'd designed the hoods. Baggy, wrinkled, shapeless, but what the hell. Although, come to think of it, at that hour, 15th Street, where the entrance to the high school was, would be deserted. It was narrow, and the courtyard wall ran all along one side, no problem. The big thing, of course, was efficiency. Settling the last details and swallowing some breakfast took up the time between then and the first class. More coffee, more, and then one for the road from the bottle as we left the apartment. Seeing that the bottle was empty, we decided to buy another one for Daniel to hide in his book bag, in case we got cold feet. In the end, we bought not one, but three bottles, the smallest size, of Black Seal, and split them so we could all take a belt now and then. We needed fuel after the all-nighter. I can only speak for myself, but I know that when I crossed the courtyard at school, there were cockroaches running around in my belly. I needed to take a leak, and my hands were clammy. The other guys didn't seem to be in any better shape. Daniel sat next to me in class, looking hollow-eyed and green. We lost track of Herrera and Hurtado because we were in A section and they were in B. As for Lina, he called attention to himself during history by looking dumber than usual, giggling for no particular reason, and picking one ear non-stop. Garcia, on the other hand, was cool as cool can be. His hair was every which way, though, and he had some impressive bags under his eyes. He'd said he would disarm the policeman with a knee-jab or a lock or a twist, so he'd be able to drag him into the gatehouse. Yeah, but what if he yelled? What if he kicked and struggled? Forget it. It would be over so fast he wouldn't have time. At least that was what Garcia said, and we had to believe him. During the eleven o'clock break, we checked to see if the pig had arrived. Sure enough, there he was. Khaki shirt, white helmet, bayonet, all in place. At noon, we carried out the first stage of the plan and 
Incredible as it may seem, it went like clockwork. We had no problem staying in the library. The priest sailed through roll call without a hitch and went away with everybody else for lunch. When the time came, Daniel went downstairs. A minute later, we heard him whistle from the courtyard and tore downstairs and into the gatehouse. This was a dinky little room with one crummy window, a high ceiling, and a bare light bulb hanging down from a braided wire. There was a table and one chair and a telephone. The afternoon was overcast and the bulb was low watt, so we could barely see to pass around the hoods Lina was getting out of his book bag. His hands were trembling. What a jerk! He hadn't bothered to take any measurements, and it hadn't occurred to anybody that some had bigger heads. At the last minute I had to hand my hood over to Garcia and use one that scratched my cheeks and made my eyelids burn. The other guys must have been uncomfortable, too, but they didn't dare so much as peep. Once we had our hoods on, we crowded around the door and watched Garcia leave with that springy step he had, like a boxer going into the ring. The street was deserted. Everybody must have gone down to 7th Street to watch the march. We knew there were patrols on the corner of 12th Street and a riot squad at Bolivar Plaza, but there was nobody on our sidewalk but the usual pig. You could hear the yelling in the distance, down with the Minister of Education, slogans from Che and Camilo, people chanting, Jalisco here! Jalisco here! because the name of one of the students from Cali that the troops had taken out was Jalisco. And then, yes, it was then, while we were all jammed in the doorway, that was when we heard a kind of howl and something like a double meteor crashed into us. Get his bayonet, Garcia yelled. Herrera and Daniel hit the floor. Lina made a rush and I saw Garcia hand him a pistol. Hurtado slammed the door and I pushed the table against it, still following the plan. I remember my knees were weak and my head was swimming. When I turned around, everybody was piled on top of the guy on the floor, squirming and grunting. I just stood there frozen, gasping for air. I barely saw them drag him into the corner where the table had been. Daniel had kicked over the chair and thrown the bayonet into a corner while Garcia and Herrera held the Indian face down. They tied his hands together with a rope Lina had remembered to put in his book bag. I'd seen Lina take out a bottle of booze when he was looking for the rope. I didn't care if the other guys were looking or not. I grabbed the bottle and took a belt. They weren't paying any attention to me, though. They were still piled on top of the pig and... He was wriggling like a snake and kicking to fight them off. He was no piker, that's for sure. Lina was holding the gun to the pig's temple while Daniel tied the gag, cussing a blue streak. I saw Lina's hand shaking. The agreement was that Hurtado and I wouldn't take part in the scuffle because one of us had to see to the door while the other took care of the telephone. I was just standing there gawking like a moron. I had trouble seeing who was in the pile-up because of the hoods, but I could practically feel them panting and taste the dryness in their mouths. I could almost see the excitement of fear in their faces. Lina would be losing his grip on the pistol. The veins would be standing out on Garcia's forehead and neck. 
He'd skin his knuckles, turning the Indian over, holding him down, jamming a knee into his neck. The poor sap's helmet had fallen off. All you could see above the gag was a pair of eyes popping out under a lot of messed-up black hair. Sweat was pouring down his forehead, along his sideburns. He groaned every time they kicked him. It sounded like he was saying, Yamito, Yamito, shut up, or I'll blow your head off, you fucking pig. Lina's voice was muffled by the hood. The time had come. I took the slip of paper out of my pocket and went over to the telephone I'd left on the windowsill a few minutes before. My hands were shaking as bad as my jaw. I couldn't find the numbers to dial. All at once I heard my own voice, high and squeaky as the words tumbled out. Hello? Las Aguas Police Station? Can I talk to the sergeant on duty? Somebody said, Hold the line. I grabbed the phone with my other hand, shifted it to the other ear. Somebody else said hello, and I said, Sergeant? I didn't even stop to swallow my spit, just rasped out the speech I'd rehearsed a thousand times that morning. I rattled it off like a charm until I came to the number on the pig's badge. Hurtado ripped it off his shirt and stuck it under my nose. I read the number all right, but the last sentences came out in stammers. The part about it was w -w -w one ten in the afternoon, and b before two ten, the s -s -s students who'd been taken prisoner had to be f -f -f freed, Sergeant, or else we'd execute the p policeman we were holding hostage. No, no, no. It was no j joke. It was dead serious. So, Sergeant, we belonged to an organization that was m -m making its existence known in the f -f first action. First action. First. When I hung up, my hand was so sweaty I dropped the phone. I turned the chair over, collapsed into it, handed the badge to Hurtado, looked around. Nobody was saying anything. They were just watching me through the holes in their hoods. Herrera stooping over, Linus pointing the gun at the pig, Daniel pinning him down with his feet, Garcia driving a fist into his chest. All you could hear were people grunting and gasping. In the middle of it all, the pig was still twisting and kicking. His olive-drab leggings were muddy. With a gag on, he looked like a gargoyle. For some reason, his eyes made me think of two coffee beans. It was then that somebody started knocking on the door, not very loud at first. Open the door, gentlemen. Then louder, almost banging. Open up, the gatekeeper. Daniel signaled us to keep quiet and stood up. We were all staring at that piece of rotting wood as if it were glass, as if we could see what was happening on the other side, why the blows were coming faster than slower before they finally stopped. When everything was quiet again, we figured the guy had gone to give the alarm. Quiet, Daniel barked. But it wasn't easy. The room was cold and damp, but we felt overheated, claustrophobic. We tried to make ourselves comfortable. Hurtado on the table to take care of the bolt, Daniel and Herrera on the floor, one on either side of the pig. Lina was standing with his back against the wall. Garcia took out a bottle and passed it around. Whew. It was hard to breathe. 
The silence dragged on and on. We stared at each other through the hoods whenever we weren't rubbing our eyes, which was most of the time, and reached into our pockets every few minutes, but nobody had the guts to light up. Noise at the door again. More knocking. Is this a joke? A practical joke? The scholastic studies teacher sounded pretty near hysterical. They've locked it from inside, the gatekeeper, again. More knocking, louder this time. Open up in there! Daniel made a face. Lina gave a nervous giggle and almost dropped the pistol. Garcia jerked it out of his hand and stood with his feet apart like a soldier, aiming at the pig. Hurtado turned around to check the bolt and then looked toward the window. All you could see was dirt and a little patch of gray. Herrera picked up the bayonet from the corner and used it to make sure the window latch was still shut. I was paralyzed, numb. The cockroaches in my stomach had turned to worms. I felt like maybe I was going to get diarrhea. More knocking. Open up! We jumped when the telephone rang. I reached out to answer, but Daniel motioned to leave it alone. Better to let it ring. It couldn't be the police. They hadn't even had time to check if what we'd said was true. Unless the pig's badge number, but not that quick, no way. It kept ringing. Pause. Two rings. One, two. One, two. We stared at it like we expected it to explode. When it finally stopped, we could hear a little scratching noise at the door. I mean in the lock. We had the key inside, so the gatekeeper was probably trying to pick the lock with a hook or skeleton key. Something that made a gnawing sound. Then that stopped, and the knocking started again. Less patient, more aggressive. It was scholastic studies again. This time there had to be some other priests with him, because we weren't sure whose voices we were hearing. Four or five of them, raising hell, thumping at the door, trying to force it, and it cracked, and would have given way but for the double bolt and the safety plate. Finally, it sounded like they got tired, and Scholastic Studies yelled, Open up, or we'll call the police. Hurry up and get that door open now. That was when Garcia, without warning, ripped his hood off and yelled back, If you call the police, we'll blow away the one we've got tied up in here. Herrera and Daniel turned around to stare at him. I couldn't see their faces because of the hoods, but it looked like they thought he was some kind of hero. Nobody but me lifted a finger. I raised one hand to object, but I don't think anybody noticed. Open up this minute, the priest insisted. He kept rattling the bolt as if he hadn't paid any attention to Garcia. Just then, somebody blew a whistle in the street, and we heard something that sounded like a jeep. We looked up at the window. We wanted to look out, but the window was too high, and the glass was so dirty you could hardly even see the light from the street. Now the knocking had stopped, and there were voices in the street. Scholastic studies and the gatekeeper, mixed in with other priests and the crowd that was gathering. They're going to talk to us through a megaphone, just like in the movies, Daniel laughed. Hurtado motioned for him to shut up. 
Lila tried to jump high enough to look through the window. I offered him the chair, but he didn't want it. Garcia burst out. This heat is killing me! We threw the pistol on the table so hard we jumped again. The noise in the street was getting to all of us. Garcia took a deep breath and blew it out, leaned against the wall, tore off his hood, took another deep breath, wiped the sweat off his face, put the hood back on. Meanwhile, the hullabaloo outside was growing. Heavy military boots came thudding down the street. Somebody started shouting orders. Garcia picked up the pistol. We have to make a decision, he announced. His voice sounded like he was inside a cave. The pig on the floor shuddered. He started to twist and struggle again, never taking his eyes off Garcia. He drew up his knees. It looked like he was about to break loose. Quiet! Daniel snapped at him and planted a foot on his chest. Outside, another car or truck pulled up outside. A pickup, maybe. And more people got out, probably more police. We heard the scholastic study teacher's voice above the din, and for the first time that day, we heard the Monsignor's voice, too. It sounded like they were objecting to something, arguing about something, but you couldn't understand what they were saying. It was then, yes, exactly then, that Garcia mumbled, We have to blow him away. Now. We all turned around and stared at him. Nobody could think of anything to say. On the floor, the Indian jumped and drew up his knees again, and when Daniel threatened him, he started shivering, shivering and howling, squealing, actually. He was squealing. You could hear a high-pitched squeal even through the gag. He was squealing like a dog or a pig and shivering. And then, well, I think that was what got to me, that shaking and squealing like an animal. I couldn't take it anymore. I don't know. It was like I had a fit. I don't know why, but I went berserk, jumped up and started yelling, yelling it wasn't fair. The damn Indian hadn't done anything. You can't do this. Don't do it. No, don't. Even though the other guys were looking at me like this through their hoods and Garcia called me chicken shit and Daniel turned around and came at me, but I tore off my hood and started to cry like a baby, like a hysterical female, blubbering. The poor pig shouldn't have to die, and I think Daniel would have decked me then and there, only that was when something exploded. The window panes blew and whammo! Something hit the floor and exploded. Afterwards, I don't know, the room was full of smoke. We were all blind and coughing our guts out, everybody gagging, gasping like we were being throttled. Our windpipe squeezed shut, smothering, choking. All of a sudden, Herrera was on his knees. Daniel was tearing at his hood. Linus was heaving. The last thing I remember was Hurtado pulling the table away from the door and Garcia yelling, Sons of bitches, they gassed us. That was it. It was all over. I never did find out what else happened. All I know is when I came to, I was on the floor, out of it, and they had to haul me away in an ambulance. So I never rode in the paddy wagon or went to the police station, and I never did find out what deal the judge cut with Monsignor after Hurtado's dad talked to him.
Hurtado's dad was a lawyer. Anyway, they hardly did anything to us. I was out of combat in the hospital, and I think my folks decided to take pity on me when they saw what shape I was in. Only a child, that kind of thing. What about the others? Herrera never even lost his scholarship. They transferred it to El Carmen in Manizales for him. Garcia's family sent him to the States, and Hurtado went to a boarding school in Medellin, where they kept him plenty cool. Lina, Daniel, and I graduated from that same school. The priests put up with the three of us to the end. Three black sheep. Well, they couldn't afford to lose that many students, either. They'd have wound up with a hell of a deficit. Aside from the fact that Lina's dad and mine had put together a tidy little donation toward the new choir loft in the chapel, how could they kick us out? In fact, me they treated like I was glass from then on, probably because of the asthma. I've always thought the doctor must have warned them at some point. What I mean to say is he must have scared them shitless. Sometimes I think he passed a clue to Lina and Daniel, too, after the tracheotomy. Because when we saw each other at El Carmen later on, I don't know. Seemed to me they acted different around me. Maybe they felt uncomfortable because they knew I was in such god-awful shape. Anyway, they both handled me with kid gloves from then on. And both of them avoided talking about the screw-up. If I tried to bring it up, they'd look at their shoelaces or change the subject. And that was okay by me. Incredible, but true. I didn't want to talk about it either. Why? I don't know. We just never felt the same afterwards. We were always uneasy, afraid to talk out of turn. Formal, somehow. Maybe we missed the other guys. Anyway, after graduation, we all went our separate ways. That was almost ten years ago. I wonder why I haven't thought about them in all that time until now, in this office, on this couch. You say I add something new every time I tell the story, Doctor. Maybe so. Sometimes I get the details mixed up. But one thing I can tell you for sure, that was where I got the asthma. And another thing, whenever I have an attack, I feel the same choking sensation, like I'm being strangled, suffocated. I swear to you, I never get relief until I land in the clinic and they punch another hole in my neck. Now they're saying it's dangerous because of the scars. I'm afraid I might beat them to it one of these days. Just get my razor and slit my own throat. That was Elena Araujo's Asthmatic, read by Peter J. Fernandez. And that's that. Some bad collegiate decisions just stay with you. But take heart. After all, you thought no one could top that second-rate Tasmanian devil tattoo that cleverly incorporates your pubic hair. 
Our show is produced by Jennifer Brennan and Mary Shimkin. Our podcast producer and editor is Colleen Pellistier. Matthew Love is our consulting producer. Our theme song is by Poddington Bear. I'm Aparna Nincherla. Thanks for joining us for Selected Shorts Too Hot for Radio. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.